Good evening. Uh, my name is Dave Hinckley. I'm the Children and, Work, Children and Youth Ministry Director here at University Reformed Church. I'm also a ruling elder. Um, as you probably know, our church is doing a faith focus for the month of January, and that focus is on the question of identity, the question of what is our identity in Christ? Who are we before a holy God? Um, and my task is to share with you about uh, the Bible and sexual identity. Um, this is a difficult and big topic, so uh, I want to pray before we get started uh, and ask the Lord's help. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would work through your word here among us tonight. We pray that you might be brought, brought glory in Jesus Christ, and we pray that our hearts would be centered on you, what you have said, and on the great love that we have for you and the great debt that we owe to you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. My outline for this evening is relatively simple. Uh, you wade into a topic like this, I thought something should be simple. I have a, a two-part introduction. And we're going to look at the text for the evening, which is uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. And then I have something I'd like to share to two groups of people, sort of as the application to close. Uh, one group and then the, the next. Um, as I said, uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. Before we get there, I have two ideas that I want to put on the table. Uh, the first idea is what I, what I want to call the faith and catechism of our culture. Now, I did not grow up going to church my upbringing was quite distant from anything spiritual, and as a teenager, I would have told you that I was an atheist and even a nihilist. Uh, but I would have said that I was an optimistic nihilist. I'm glad you laughed at that. <laughs> You're a smart congregation. You got the joke. Um, but I did. Um, I would have said I was optimistic, and that was because, even though that's a contradiction in terms, the nihilist, if those of you who don't know, believes that there's no purpose to anything in the universe, no greater purpose to anything. My optimism was a leap of faith. I thought that humans could find meaning in the meaninglessness, and I had faith in this idea, and I think many of us had faith in this idea, uh, because I had been catechized into the good news of this culture, of this world in which we live. Now, I don't mean the real good news, the true good news, uh, but this idea that is taught both in subtle and overt ways in our culture, and the idea is, is this. If you figure out, you individual person, figure out, your deepest desires, and cultivate them, you will find meaning and fulfillment. 
The path, then, to truth and happiness is only found inside of you. Now, I, I doubt that it's a surprise to you. This is the moral of most of the popular culture that you consume, isn't it? In, the entertainment that we consume is in no way morally neutral. It wants to teach you. It wants to teach us. It can't help it. Pay attention to the morals of your favorite stories. Uh, the moral of The Office is that if you can find true love, your life is going to have meaning. Isn't it? The moral of Frozen is that when you find people accept, who accept you for who you are, you have a true family, and that's the key to everything good. You can think of other examples. But the basic idea is the same. The good things of life are found in the freedom to fulfill our deepest desires. Now, notice, before we get too far, some of these desires are for good things, things that are gifts from God. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be loved, or wanting to eat, or wanting a good family. But when you want those things more, when you want those things uh, to the extent that they are what give your life its meaning, and they are where you get your identity, you've placed too much weight on those good things. Now, I'm not saying that the faith of our culture is unrestrained hedonism. But I am saying that the notion that meaning can be found in earthly things the same as hedonism. I'm saying that when we seek for our identity and meaning in created things, we will only find frustration. This is what I believed. If I could just find the right earthly circumstance, the right sexual partner, the right work, the right family, the right friends, then I could turn meaninglessness into meaning. I just needed to follow my internal compass and have faith that it would get me there. I hope that you can see the problem. The problem is that the compass inside of us is broken. If you follow where your heart leads you, you will not, it will not lead you to good. It will only lead you to you, to self. And Honestly, this is not a new idea. This is not a, this, this worldview that I, this faith that I took in, is as old as the beginning of time, isn't it? This is the bad news from the beginning of time. It's the same story in every culture, in every time, and it was into a culture exactly like the one you and I live in that Jesus said the following thing. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot 
be my disciple. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Jesus knew and knows that trying to find meaning and identity in the things of creation in the world around us is exactly what the human heart wants to do. The world says to you, you will finally be happy if you satisfy your felt needs. The world says you were made to fulfill your desires. The world says, you know you need to take care of yourself first. Jesus says, die to yourself. The only place where your true identity can be found is in Jesus. The only lasting meaning your life can have is in relation to Jesus. Okay, that was the first part of my introduction. Second part. I'd like you to think about the idea of syncretism. This might be a new word for you. Syncretism is when you take two sets of religious beliefs and you blend them together to make something new. Gnosticism in the ancient world was a syncretistic blend of, the Christian, of Christian ideas and Greek mystery religions. Sikhism you may not know, is a syncretistic blend of Islam and Hinduism. The ancient Israelites often would try and mix Baal worship with worship of the true God. Consider the story of Aaron at the foot, and the Israelites at the foot of Mount Horeb. God took too long up at the top of the mountain with Moses, so what did the people of God do? They asked Aaron to make for them a golden calf to worship. They planned a worship party. And when they began their false worship, what did they say? They said, this is the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. They did not like or accept the God who had saved them, so they tried to recast him, literally, recast him with the gold he gave them, into a God that made sense to them. These Israelites in the story were not comfortable with the sovereign will and the sovereign agency of God. Meaning, they didn't want to trust him and wait upon him. They wanted to act in accordance, they wanted him to act in accordance with their felt needs. So they made a God that looked like they wanted, they worshipped it in a way that they wanted, and said that its name was the Lord who brought them out of Egypt. Now, fast forward, there's no place today that I, I think more evident uh, where this kind of syncretism is more evidently on display than in what we call the prosperity gospel. It's an attempt to mix this faith of self-actualization, self-filling your needs that I was talking about before, and some veneer of the gospel. No, some veneer of Christianity, not the gospel. 
essentially, Jesus is reduced as into a way to get what you need and get what you want. The Christian life to the prosperity gospel is not about submitting to a Lord, but about claiming the gifts that he has for you. Softer forms encourage you to believe what they say so that you can have your best life now. Praise the Lord that you and I are not living our best life now. As a rapper uh, that I like said about this, if you're living your best life now, you're headed to hell. Prosperity gospel is heresy and should be condemned and prayed against. But brothers and sisters, the attempt to mix the worship of the true God and the exaltation of human desires doesn't just live in the old compact center in Houston. It lives within the walls of real churches. It lives wherever anyone says, my felt needs carry more weight than the clear teaching of the word of God. It lives in phrases like, well, I know we're married, but I think God would want me to be happy. Or, maybe I would be a better husband if you were a better wife. Or, I was in class a couple of weeks ago and I heard the story of an elderly woman in a church in the South where there had been much historical racism and the, the, the pastor was teaching against this and teaching uh, the right biblical understanding um, and she said this to the preacher, I don't care what you say, I don't care what the Bible says, I don't think black and white people should be in church together. This syncretism is alive. That brings us to our text, which is 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Amen. A little bit of context for this passage. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, which was a church that was having a bunch of problems. Specifically, they had lots of rampant sin in the church. It was a really bad situation. The honor of Jesus was less important to them than the honor of their favorite preacher of Jesus. When they did communion, the rich people who brought the bread would eat up all the bread, and the poor people didn't get any of the bread. They thought they were super open-minded and progressive and free in Christ because they had a man in their church who married a stepmother. They bragged about it. They would sue each other in the public courts. These people who are supposed to be united in Christ didn't really care about one another, or at least they put their own needs before anyone else's needs. 
And they said things like this, because of Jesus, all things are lawful for me. That is, they justified their bad behavior with the blood of Christ. I'm free to be cruel, sleep with whoever I want, cheat people, because Christ has forgiven me. Now, Paul isn't having it. He's anxious that their faith would prove to have been genuine. And this passage uh, is his, part of his counsel to them, and it's a strong statement. He's speaking strongly to them. He wants to correct their wrong-headed way of thinking about grace, and he hopes that they will see that they are putting their desires above God and that they will turn from their desires and put Jesus back where he belongs, on the top of their lives. I hope that you can already see that there's a parallel to my introduction and what's going on here in the, the Corinthian church. These Corinthians thought that they could have their wants be the king, they could have their wants be the king of their lives, and also have Jesus too. These Corinthians were syncretists of the type that I've been describing, just like those Israelites. They had been led out of slavery, this time by the gospel, and now they wanted to use their freedom to follow their own internal compasses. Thus, to these people, the gospel story was a story about them, not about Jesus. Paul says to them, those of you who think that all things are lawful because, Jesus, because of Jesus need to remember that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he lists ten types of unrighteousness as examples. The sexually immoral are people who pursue some kind of sexual sin, sex before marriage, adultery, sexual abuse, pornography, etc. In Corinth, it included marrying your stepmother. Uh, it includes homosexual behavior. An idolater puts something in their life above God. An adulterer disregards or breaks the marriage covenant. Men who practice homosexuality or men who have sexual or romantic relationships with other men. It would be wrong to assume because he specifies males here, that he doesn't therefore think that female homosexuality is sin, not merely because Paul refers to that as sin specifically elsewhere in his letters, but because of the larger point of this passage. Any relationship that is more important to you than following what God has said is sin. Thieves take what does not belong to them and what they have not earned. The greedy are those who care about money or personal possessions more than they care about people. Drunkards take freedom in Christ to mean freedom to be drunk. Revilers delight in saying harsh things and hurtful things to other people. Really, they delight in believing that they are superior to other people. Swindlers use deceptive words, or they omit important words in order to gain something for themselves. And Paul says to these Corinthians, 
Are these the names that you want? Are these the definitions that you want? Is this who you are? Forgiveness is not license. Forgiveness is purchase. You have been bought from slavery to lust, but you still have an owner. Your new owner is kind and loving and gives you freedom, but you still have to do what he says. It might be easy to mistake, make the mistake of reading this passage as saying that anyone who has ever sinned in any of these ways listed is excluded from God's kingdom. That's not what's going on here. What Paul is doing is recognizing the reality that our desires, our worship, and our identity are all mixed together. These Corinthians seem to be saying to themselves, I can do whatever I want, like I'm the God of my life, and I can say that God has a plan for me, that this is God's plan for me in Jesus. Justification by faith alone leads you to conclude that every behavior that you do is acceptable to God, then you are attempting to mix together the worship of Christ and the worship of your desires. In order to get at this reality, Paul puts the idea of identity in front of them. Essentially, he's asking this hard question, which one are you? He knows these people. He knows where they come from, and he knows that if you present yourselves to anything as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey. Paul is demonstrating this connection between what they give themselves to and who they are. If you view Christ as a means to fulfilling your desire for created things, something is wrong. You have a different identity. Paul's main point is you can't do both. You can't be a drunkard and a Christian. You can't belong to alcohol and belong to Jesus. Paul sees the believers in Corinth as people who are attempting to have Jesus and the world. They want to serve both equally and there's no place in the kingdom of God for double identity Christians. You either belong to Jesus or you belong to your desires. Recall Jesus saying, no one can serve two masters for, he, for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot serve both God and adultery. You cannot serve both God and hate. You cannot serve both God and alcohol. Brothers and sisters, if you don't hear anything else I say tonight, hear this. Jesus will not share worship. What you desire most reveals what you worship. What you worship defines who you are. You desire material gain for yourself at the expense of others and at the expense of what God has said. 
then you worship yourself and you are a thief. In these verses, Paul is drawing a rhetorical identity contrast. He's saying if you live by your desires, then you must be identified by your desires. If you are a slave to something, you take its name. But, 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 if you are a believer in Christ, these are not your names. Regardless of whether or not you've committed these sins, if you are a believer in Christ, these desires are no longer your identity. This list is meant to convict us. It's meant to convict the Corinthians, and it's meant to convict us. We're meant to read this list and ask ourselves, am I putting my desire for things like these ahead of Jesus? Who among us, who in this room, has a perfect score on putting Christ ahead of our desires? Am I living as if my identity is defined by what I want? Am I living as if my identity is defined by my sexual desires? Am I living as if my identity is defined by my desire for wealth? Am I living as if my identity is defined by being better than others? Am I living as if my identity is defined by what I consume? If I am, then I need to repent. And I need to stop. Why? Because if, if I am in Christ, that is not who I really am. Praise the Lord. The glorious truth of these verses is that, believer, you have a different name. You who are in Christ have a different definition. You who are in Christ have a different identity. You may have sinned in these ways, you may be tempted in these ways. You may fall again into sin in these ways, but because of Jesus, you don't belong to these desires anymore. You are not owned. You are not identified. Such were some of you, but you have been washed. You have been sanctified. You were justified. You were washed. The stain of sin no longer sticks on you. You are not defiled, nor unclean. You are not dirty, nor one from whom people should turn their face. In Jesus, you are clean. You are purified. You are made new. Who dares? to say that the bride of Christ is unworthy of him. No. He made her, he made you, worthy with his blood and his suffering. You have been sanctified. You have been set apart for holy purposes. You have 
not just been made new, you have been made with a glorious purpose. You are not some common thing, ordinary on its way to destruction. You are not disposable. You are not just a number. You are called out. You are special among all creation. You have been called into relationship with the master of all things. You've been adopted by the best of all fathers, and you get to call him dear Abba. You have been justified. In Jesus, the condemnation you deserved for your sins has been satisfied. Yes, your sin, my sin, deserves the wrath of God, but Christ has taken the wrath that his people deserve. That means there is now no longer any condemnation that can threaten you. That means that everything that happens from now on in the whole world is in your favor. That means not only the forgiveness of sins, but glorious and eternal peace. I want you to see the, the two more clauses in this, in this passage. In the name of Jesus... This phrase is the stamp and seal of your washing, sanctifying, and justifying. It means that they are real and effectual. It has happened in the name of Jesus. You have been purchased by him, not by another. You aren't now just a slave to another sin or to another person. No, Jesus has purchased you and made you his heir, made you an heir of God the Father. You have been given what he deserves, the reward he deserves for the life that he lived. And he has taken upon himself the penalty that you deserve. By the Spirit of our God, this phrase is the guarantee that these things are being worked out among us as we speak. This means that as this word is read and explained today, work is being done in the souls of God's people. Not because of me, not because I'm so persuasive, but because the Spirit of God works through his word to bring transformation to the hearts of the people whom he is saving. If you have taken the name of Jesus, if you belong to Christ by faith, you must not try and take back the names of your old desires. You must not return to your old masters. You cannot serve Christ and them. You must repent and turn away from your sin and turn fully to your Savior's embrace. To close, I want to speak specifically to two groups of people uh, in an attempt to further apply these truths to our lives. The first group, I, I guess, is everybody here. People within the church, people who claim the name of Jesus. Here's what I'd, I'd like you to take home. Taking your desires for the things of this earth, as deep as you feel them, as right as they may feel, as your identity, will only lead you to destruction. Even if they're good things that you desire. 
Only Jesus Christ can bear the weight of your identity and your meaning. You must not find, excuse me, you must find your meaning in him and not in what you do, not in who you love, not in what you can get. The truth of the matter is that we humans are inclined because of our sinful nature to find our identity in the things that are wrong. You can very easily act like the Corinthians and say, I want to worship family and Jesus. I want to worship alcohol and Jesus, etc. And the work of the Christian life, the, 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 the work of sanctification in the Christian life is to pull you out of that. And this is, this is the reason, honestly, for the trials that you face in your life. And it's the work that the Holy Spirit is doing in you in your Christian life. God is working in you to make you more reliant upon him and less reliant upon here. It's very hard to give over your sinful desires to Christ. It is very difficult. We all find ourselves, no matter what sins we've committed, guilty before this holy God and in need of his grace. And we can't act somehow like someone else is uniquely stained by sin in a way that we're not. I hope that you also see today that they, meaning the sexual sinner, their struggle is your struggle. Maybe not exactly, but it's close enough. You're called out of this list in the same way that they are called out of this list. Your sin may be different, but dealing with your sin is the same. It's hard. It's a fight. It can be discouraging. Sometimes it seems to make more sense to give in. No one is getting into heaven because they deserve it. No one is getting, in, getting favor from God because their sins aren't as bad as someone else's. It's not the reason that we are saved. If you take comfort in the fact that you're merely an angry person, and at least you're not a homosexual, that's a sin against the mercy of God. We all know that fighting our sin is costly. We all know that our own sin causes destruction every day. There's absolutely no room for self-righteousness in the forgiven sinner. Christians, we have to figure out how to send this message to the gay people in our lives. I love you enough to pray for you and hope for you to turn away from this desire. I know it will be very, very hard. And no one more than I sympathizes with the difficulty. Every day it is very, very hard for me also to turn from my own desires and put Christ first. But this is the calling of God on our lives. I think that one barrier we can have here is that in our politicized culture, we can, we can view people who view things differently like this as enemies rather than as fellow broken people. But 
wouldn't it be nice maybe if Christ had told us how we were supposed to behave toward our enemies? They're not our enemies. But uh, you are obligated by the commands of the Master who redeemed you to pray for these people who share in your brokenness and extend his mercy to them. Who's going to pray for them if you don't? Who's going to tell them about the mercies of Christ if you don't? Stop thinking in terms of culture war and start thinking in terms of saving people from a sinking ship. Because we know the end. And because we have faith in the hope of submission to Christ, we can say to these sharers of our own brokenness, with love and mercy, get off of the train tracks. There's a train coming. I want you to be safe. And they may say, how dare you? And they may say, you make me feel like I'm less than nothing with your warnings about your train. What are you going to say back? Do you say, fine then, get hit, see if I care? Or do you say, I'm so sorry, I guess my belief in a train has made me insensitive. I'll be quiet from now on. No. Have the courage to say, I don't mean to hurt you or make you feel like you're worthless. Exactly the opposite. I have been on those tracks, and because I care about you, I know that the train is coming, and I can't retreat from telling you and warning you about it. second group of people that I want to talk to uh, are people who are gay or bi, or pan, or even trans. Issues with trans are different, but they're related. The call to obedience is on all of us. Taking your desires for the things of this earth, as deep as you may feel them, as right as they may feel, as your identity will lead you to destruction. Finding your identity and definition in anything other than Jesus Christ will not work. I don't say these things because I want you to be a clone of me or because I think that you are nasty. I hope that you see from what I've said already that you and I are, are the same. We're broken and inclined to put things above Jesus. God is not calling you to place your affections on the gender that you aren't attracted to. God is calling you to follow him. God is not calling you to transform into something that you're not. He's calling you to be who you were meant to be, who he made you to be. Elsewhere, Paul says it this way, I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable before God, which is your spiritual worship. Your worship of Christ must mean that you give over the 
authority of what is done with your body to him. You show him honor by only doing what he's allowed. You show him that he's Lord. You and I have been told lies by the world and the devil, and these lies are that if we find the right romantic partner, we will be fulfilled and happy. Fulfillment and happiness will not come through romance or any other kind of earthly relationship. The only human that can give you meaning is Jesus, the God-man. Let me speak plainly. The Bible's exhortation today is turn away from your desire to sin and turn to Jesus. Pursuing homosexual relationships will not go as you hope it will go. It will not give you what you are looking for. It will not fulfill you like you hope it will. Those of us who say this to you today do not say it as people unacquainted with the calling that God is giving to you. He gives it to me, too. His will in my life must come first. And I affirm that this is sometimes hard calling. Now, some of you are going to say, that's not fair. It's not fair to put homosexual desire, which isn't a choice, with these other things, which clearly are choices. I would argue that everything on this list is both less a choice than you think and also more of a choice than you think. Again, Paul's not talking about mere temptations or even individual discrete sins. He's talking about people whose desires for these things rival or outweigh their desire for Jesus. He's talking about a desire so strong that it qualifies as an identity. That kind of desire has a very complicated origin. It's full of nature and nurture and reinforcing choices. And the difficulty of the calling does not invalidate the calling. God is calling you to come out, but not in the way the culture uses that term. And Jesus is worth that sacrifice. I hope that you can see from the text tonight that you can't have both. Jesus does not share worship regardless of what anyone in the culture or in the world or your family is telling you, you can't have Jesus and pursue desires that he's forbidden. That's serving two masters. You have to choose. Remember the words of Christ that I read at the beginning. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel's will save it. The key to life is death. The key to fulfillment, happiness, and meaning is offering your desires on an altar to Christ. I, we, understand that this is very, very hard. But oh, let me tell you, he is worth this cost.
he is faithful. We who are here are here to testify to the truth that he is faithful and worth this, this cost. We who, just like you, have been called out of our sin can testify that we've traveled this path of giving ourselves wholeheartedly to Christ, imperfectly, but we've traveled this path. And we are here, this church is here, we are here saying, singing, yelling to the world around us, to you, he is worth this. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. In him, you will find rest for your soul. Let's pray. Lord, is our earnest desire that you would bring to yourself broken sinners. Lord, we are in awe of your mercy to us to each one of us, and we ask, we ask that you would, through us, show mercy to those who need it. Lord, we have tasted and seen that you are good, so good, and we ask that you would do a work of grace through your word and through your people. We trust you, Lord, and we ask again that you would send your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.